Hello everyone, welcome to this edition of McFarland's Policy and Practice podcast. Today we're talking about the government's plans to remove retained EU law from the UK statute work. I'm Jonathan Pratt, a senior knowledge lawyer at McFarland's. I'm joined by David Gork, our head of public policy, and by Stephen Conn, who's had an illustrious career as a competition lawyer and now also heads up our cross-departmental working group, which focuses on issues arising out of Brexit. Stephen, I think it makes sense to start with the law as it currently stands. Why are we still even talking about retained EU law? Well, at the time of withdrawal in the Withdrawal Acts, which were from 2018 and subsequently amended at the time, we actually agreed the Brexit deal in 2020. We retained much of EU law um, as a result of the, the, the acts themselves. Um, the dynamic alignment, in other words, the continual process of accepting new EU law, um, stopped as a result of the Withdrawal Act. But all existing EU law um, was retained. It acquired the title of retained, or I think it's easier to refer to it as derived EU legislation, which means all primary and secondary legislation that drew its origins from the EU was retained. And the government could often by secondary legislation, amend that law over time. But in fact, it was very slow to do so, with the result that this category of law, retained EU law, um, remains on the statute book uh, and continues to apply to most business activities in the UK. The reason we're talking about it is the government wanted to change that. So, David, as Stephen says, the government's obviously not happy with the status quo. Could you explain why that is? I think it has to be said that a lot of this is driven by a particular element of the Conservative Party, uh, including Jacob Rees-Mogg, who was the business secretary uh, for a spill under uh, Liz Truss. Um, and the, the the concern that an element of the Conservative Party has is, look, you know, we've left the European Union. What are we doing still having European Union laws on our statute books, and we should be doing things differently. And there needs to be a bit of impetus in that. So this is about accelerating divergence, uh, and as they would see it, you know, obtaining the benefits of Brexit. And this uh, legislation sort of incentivizes Whitehall to get on with it uh, and not be obstructive and to embrace all the great uh, new opportunities. I think there is also a second element which is perhaps less frequently stated, but is at the back of the minds of a lot of uh, these people, which is we might see a change of government before very much longer. Um, we need to make sure that Brexit is as irreversible as possible. And um, if you have got a lot of EU legislation that is essentially still in place, then it is easier for the UK to move back within the orbit of the European Union um, than if we have taken a, a scythe to this legislation and we have changed a lot of the legislation, we've diverged and, and you know, there is a bigger difference between the UK uh, and the EU. So I think that that is the sort of, you know, it is very much about you know, Brexit and a pure and proper and what they would describe as clean Brexit, um, and, and, and try to put as big a distance between the UK and the EU as quickly as possible. Which leads us to the retained EU law revocation and reform bill. Stephen, could you give us an overview of exactly how the bill is intended to bring an end to retained EU law? 
Well, um, it, as David says, it's it's intended to give a clean break from all retained or derived EU legislation. And it does so by essentially providing a sunset clause or sunsetting of all such legislation. And the first question that arises is when is this legislation going to be revoked? Because that's ultimately the way it's approached. At the primary level, you revoke the existing retained EU law. And the government under Jacob Rees-Mogg, and as far as we're aware, that remains their intention, provides in the bill for EU retained law to be revoked by the end of this year. Uh, And when you consider that we're talking here about all essentially secondary legislation, not primary domestic legislation, which is not impacted by the bill, which in itself creates complications, but all secondary legislation is to be revoked by the end of this year, um, subject to one very, well, several caveats, but one particularly important caveat. Um, and we're talking, best estimates are, the government has, hasn't themselves confirmed what the number of pieces of legislation we're talking about, but the best estimates are around 4,000 different pieces of legislation by the, by the, 20, the 31st of December 23. And the one major caveat is that it is possible to extend that date individual departments of government ministers can extend that date until the 23rd of June 2026, which of course happens to be exactly 10 years post the EU referendum, which in itself, as David says, has a political message attaching to that. Um, But ultimately, the government would then be able to convert that law as they see fit. They can amend it, they can retain it, in which case it is now called assimilated law or they can decide to remove it entirely from the statute book. Um, but essentially, it is a clean sweep, if you like, of EU retained law. Thank you. So, David, we're in January 2023. The bill hasn't passed yet. Is the end of 2023 a realistic deadline for government departments to do what they need to do, do you think? Uh, I would say that the opinion of... Um, most lawyers, most officials, former officials, and most ministers, and I'm speaking for one former minister, <laughs> namely me, uh, <laughs> I would say that that is not realistic at all. And it's worth, you know, it's worth bearing in mind, you know, as Stephen says, there's 4,000 pieces of legislation there. Now, some of those will vary. Some of those pieces of legislation will be kind of very straightforward. Um, but even if you've only got a sort of small minority of the 4,000 pieces of legislation that are really you know, pretty chunky, um, if you are looking to review that legislation, that is quite a time-consuming process if you're doing it properly. Because you know it's not the case that there's just you know, some lawyer in Whitehall who can make a judgment here. You know, if you are going to reform something that's sort of fairly substantial and say this covers issues like data protection and cybersecurity and workers' rights and insolvency, there's a long list um, which we have explored uh, in, in, in a note on this. Um, you know, some of these areas are really quite complex. The, the, the sort of law of unintended consequences um, certainly can't be abolished and you never quite know what is going to happen here. You make a change or you, know, you scrap a piece of law, you revise it. You, know, you really have to look at this in some significant detail. And the idea that you can get through you know, you know, anything like a sort of you know, 
a, a substantial number of big pieces of legislation in the course of the year, when you really ought to be going out and consulting with the relevant parties, you should be, you know, understanding from you know outside lawyers. You should be understanding from you know from people working in particular sectors. Then make a judgment: it's all fine, or it's not. You know, this needs to be amended, or we can scrap it. That that is a really you know big task. Uh, and so, you know, it is no surprise that there is a, you know, there have been a long list of legal commentators and officials, uh, and reti- well, retired officials who have made the point that that is simply you know, not doable without taking enormous risks. Okay, and so we've largely focused so far on how the bill will abolish existing laws. Stephen, could you say a little bit about the powers given to the government to? make new law effectively. Yeah, um, this is one of the ironies of the bill in many ways, because, as you know, sovereignty was one of the key arguments in the referendum debate. And yet here we have the government being given fairly wide-ranging powers to actually, by secondary legislation and subject to minimal parliamentary scrutiny, in other words, by secondary legislation, it's been described as the famous Henry VIII powers on steroids. It, it's, it's able to simply amend vast swathes of our legislation, for example, in the areas. I mean, take take two areas, which are very significant for business that, that David touched upon. Uh, TUPI, the TUPI regulations, those are very, very important. They cover, I would imagine, virtually every contractual arrangement, certainly between employers and employees, has some reference to TUPI. Uh, and TUPI is governed so much in terms of our business activities. That can be changed by the government uh, with minimal parliamentary scrutiny and in, and with very little consultation of third parties. Another area that, as we understand it, is likely to be impacted are the VAT regulations, which again have a very significant impact, not least of all given the current political debate on taxation. And again, it is open to the government under these powers because they are EU-derived legislation to change it. And so very, very wide powers. And the third area it's worth mentioning is in relation to, um, in, in relation to interpretation of EU laws. And we may well be coming on to that later, but the courts are given much wider discretion to essentially ignore EU precedent and to change precedent, which was based on the principle of supremacy of EU law. David, do we have any indication at this stage about how the government's likely to use these powers? You have much guidance from it. Well, not really. Um, and, and the difficulty here is, you know, given the tight time frame that we've talked about, um, what you could imagine happening um, is, you know, after all the you know, huffing and puffing that kind of goes on, is that in the end, you know, ministers, because they don't have the time to sort of do this uh, in a considered way, uh, you might think that their the response that they'll take, and, and no doubt they will be you know, lobbied and encouraged to take this response, is to more often than not simply defer um, and to put it put it in the bucket of things that you know will keep in place, and then you know maybe uh, at which point people will ask, well, what was the whole point of this process? Uh, and I think there's an interesting, you know, this is very again very much a political is that you will get some of those who are very enthusiastic about this legislation, very enthusiastic about diverging from the EU, saying, ah, oh, there we go again. You know, Whitehall is being obstructive. You know, they had this powers and you know, 
Yeah, they will then look at what has happened and find that the vast majority of our 4,000 laws have kind of been left in place untouched, um, just a third. And, you know, again, you kind of kicking off a bit of a, uh, of a fuss about it. So there, there will be, there will be a bit of a pressure on ministers not to do that all the time, not to just sort of, you know, kick it into the long grass as, as it might be seen and to make, to make changes. Now, I think we will, yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah, the rumours about what's going on in Whitehall is lots of departments are kind of going back and saying, you know, oh, seriously, we don't have time to do this. Can we defer it? Yeah, there are reports of senior ministers who are saying, you know, let's let's push the deadline back three years or so. I mean, we'll come to the sort of parliamentary debate. So that's might might be where we end up. You know, what might end up happening anyway. Um, but I, you know, I don't think we can ignore the fact that there is a political pressure also to be seen to be doing things and not just kicking it into the long grass. So that's why I think there has to be some uncertainty as to what ministers will do. I suspect in most cases we won't see very much coming from this, even if the legislation gets through untouched. Um, but, but you, we can't be entirely sure because you know, there will be ministers looking over their shoulders knowing that, you know, if they seem to have done nothing with the powers under this bill, um, they're, they're rather messing the side down. And seeing to the extent that we do see changes made, possibly seeing a general sense of direction they're likely to go in, more regulation, less regulation? Well, the fundamental principle of the bill, it's, it's the ultimate piece of legislation which builds on the kind of Thatcherite deregulation kind of philosophy because it's supposed to be a bill that deregulates. It's In fact, the bill provides that it can only be used for deregulation, not the imposition of further regulation. Exactly where the line is drawn, though, between introducing more legislation, new regulation and deregulation, of course, is in itself somewhat of a curate's egg, which nobody can actually predict in the future. And the other thing worth saying, I think, two other kind of comments building on what David had said, the first thing is, of course, this applies only to secondary legislation. In other words, there's no power in the bill for the powers to be used to amend or revoke primary legislation. And that creates a problem because much primary legislation it has an EU origin. For example, the Equalities Act, which goes back to many, many years. But there's been an enormous swathe of secondary legislation passed pursuant to that act. And so the primary piece of legislation empowering the secondary legislation has to remain untouched, but the secondary legislation can be amended in all sorts of ways. I think the other thing it's worth saying is, is that the rationale to some extent of all of this is to domesticate EU law so that it now reassumes the quality of UK domestic law from a constitutional point of view. But of course, so much of this legislation comes from UK law in any event, because a lot of it is EU directives. And those directives have all been implemented. The whole nature of a directive is that member state implements it in their own national legislation. So a lot of it is already domesticated as a result of its initially being introduced into UK law by way of either primary or secondary legislation. Great. And before we move off that point, I suppose the other point to think about is Parliament's role in scrutinising any changes that get made? David, do you think there's any scope for Parliament to play a role there? Um, I mean, if, if the legislation goes through as drafted, I mean, this is the point, and Stephen touched on it earlier, you know, constitutionally, 
Parliament is really left out in the cold. Um, because, you know, if we're going to see a load of changes that are made by, you know, by regulations, um, you know, Parliament won't have any amending ability, you know, they can say yes or no. Um, but, you know, this is a really quite remarkable shift of power from Parliament to ministers. So you know, we could see areas of legislation that in normal times you know, would be a kind of you know, big piece of legislation that would have you know, a huge amount of parliamentary scrutiny, um, uh, you know, essentially you know, run through in the course of a 90, you know, potentially sort of 90 minute debate uh, in a committee room. Um, with you know little ability, well, with no ability to amend what the government has decided to do. So, you know, one of the one of the big challenges here, and you know, Stephen touched on this, is, is Parliament's kind of left out in the cold. And you know, the 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 irony that this is a consequence of a, of a vote which was for many people justified on the basis uh, of um, you know, increasing our parliamentary democracy. Uh, and accountability, um, uh, you know, has struck many people, and, and so, yeah, part of I mean, that, 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 that I think is one of the big criticisms of this is that Parliament's place is is weakened in terms of a potentially you know, quite significant reforms. And Stephen, you've already hinted that there'll be changes to the way the courts interpret legislation. Um, could you unpack that a little bit for us? Sure. Under the Withdrawal Acts, the 2018-2020 Acts, the principle that EU law took pri- takes priority, the principle of supremacy, was maintained in respect of all EU laws that existed at the date of Brexit, in other words, 1st of January 2020. That has now been reversed by the, or the proposal is that will be reversed, which is the, so that the position will be that UK domestic law reassumes the overall kind of principles of dicey and going and the principle of, of uh, parliament being able to make or unmake any law whatsoever so that the subsequent act of parliament of UK domestic parliament will take priority over any pre-existing law including EU law there are provisions for supremacy to be introduced if I could call it that if the government wishes to introduce it by the back door but that's very much an exception it's not consistent with the overall philosophy of the bill. And so that is the primary change that takes place. The second change that takes place, as I alluded to earlier, is in relation to interpretation of EU law. The position under the Withdrawal Acts in 2020 was that essentially the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court could overturn existing EU precedent when it was just to do so, which is the same test that's applied and the Supreme Court overruling its own judgments or earlier judgments. That has now been widened enormously so that the scope for the courts to overturn existing EU precedent uh, is enormous, uh, is very wide. It basically there's one provision which essentially says you the courts can do it if they can can overturn it. If because it's a foreign system of law and any foreign system of law can be overturned, any foreign rule of law can be overturned. And the second change is, which is a really odd innovation in the bill, which is very much an EU sort of innovation, is that a, a domestic court can actually make a reference to a superior court during the course of a, a proceeding and ask that court 
to give an interpretation as regards whether the EU law should, what it means, or to give a contrary interpretation to established EU law. And there's even a provision that even after a case has been determined, a law officer or devolved administration can request that to be made within six months of an existing judgment. And while it doesn't overturn the existing judgment, it does mean the law in futuro, in the future, will actually be changed if the superior court decides that to be the case. So it's a complete, from every angle, it is trying to ensure that there's no residual EU law kind of permeating English domestic law. So quite a lot of change there. Yes. Um, Stephen, could you say something about the impact that this might have for businesses? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I guess a simple way of putting it is the devil will be in the detail because we don't know, as David has said, and certainly I don't think at the moment we have any insight into what is going to be affected and how. But I think the impact is very considerable. In the piece we've written, which David referred to, we go through a whole host of different areas where the potential impact is quite considerable. I've mentioned a couple such as Tupay and VAT. You can look at everything from commercial agents to cybersecurity to data protection. Essentially, the only way business is going to be able to determine this is to monitor very, very carefully on a, almost on a week to week basis exactly how this bill develops and what legislation may be introduced to, um, to sunset EU law. Yeah, just, I mean, just to sort of follow up on that, you know, we talked earlier about the timing and how sort of you know, real, realistic it is. But you know, let, let's assume that the government can get through all 4,000 pieces of legislation uh, and does decide to make some changes to it. I mean, you know, realistically, that is not going to happen until the very end of the year. Um, now, I suppose they could make the changes and say, well, the changes don't happen for some time to come. But, you know, Businesses aren't going to know the answer. That's that's the mm. I think the really big problem. They're just not going to know what the law is going to be next year until they get towards the end of this year, uh, and then they might find out well it's it's going to change, but not immediately, or it's not going to change, um, or it is going to change straight away. They, they, they don't. They just don't know because the government can't give them the answer to that because they've got to work through this process. And so I think that's the business uncertainty point. Um, is is you know, certainly one line of, of, of criticism that, that we're going to hear a lot of as as the bill progresses through both. Just to build on that one point is that all draft legislation goes through the regulatory policy committee, and they give a view as regards the impact and impact assessment. And in the impact assessment in relation to this bill, when it was first published. It said that the government had not taken any substantive analysis to support the bill and described its impact as not fit for purpose. So I think that gives you some sense for, for the, the, what David has just been describing as the lack of any insight, not because one hasn't tried, but simply because the government hasn't given any steer in relation to this, other than it's going to be very bad for EU law. So there's obviously some concerns about the bill. Yeah. Good <laughs> understatement, Jonathan. <laughs> David, how do you think that will play out in Parliament? Can you see much opposition to it? Yeah, I think there will be. I mean, the interesting place will be the House of Lords. Um, I mean, Labour, I assume, you know, will, will oppose it in the, the Commons as well. But, you know, they, they, they do tend to tread quite carefully on anything that's Brexit-related. But I think there's a kind of couple of arguments that, that you know, whether you thought Brexit was a good idea or not, you can, you can make the point. 
point about business uncertainty, and you can make the point about the sovereignty of Parliament. And you know, that, that is that you know, that is not taking a side on whether Brexit was a good thing or, or not, although Labour will be very nervous that that's how it will be presented. Um, but you know, I assume that there's not going to be an enormous rebellion in the House of Commons from Conservative MPs on this. Um, but the place to look is the House of Lords, and we're already getting strong indications that that is the case, that crossbenchers don't like it. There are Conservative peers who don't like it. Um, and, 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 you know, are, are, are sensitive to the arguments that, um, you know, we, we, we have, well, that many have set out that we have, uh, have summarized here. Um, so I think the House of Lords is going to be a pretty difficult place for this legislation. Um, and, you know, as we've already mentioned, there's been, you know, speculation in the press that the government might, you know, concede this in terms of moving the sunset clause from 2023 to 20, end of 2026. Um, but, you know, that, that will, you know, this is where the government is in a difficult position. If the government is sort of too willing to concede that, um, there will be then parts of the Conservative Parliamentary Party who will be kicking off and saying, you're not properly delivering Brexit. So it's a, it's a, it's a, a difficult but, you know, I would expect there to be very strong resistance uh, in the House of Lords to this. And the chances are some fairly fundamental amendments will pass in the Lords. The question is then, you know, what happens as the Commons kind of dig in and keep sending it back? But of course, you know, the longer this process goes on, the further we get through 2023. And, you know, the harder it is to, to, to meet the timetable set out in the bill. Okay, so there's there's quite a lot for businesses to watch out for. If you'd like to know more about the bill, as Stephen mentioned, we've got an article on our website which talks about it and focuses on some of the specific areas of law that might be affected. Other than that, I think it just remains for me to thank Stephen and David for your very helpful comments. Thank you. Thank you.